Well, good morning again to you here in 101, 102, and then online with us as well. Um, I'm not a huge reality TV show fan. Um, there have not been many reality TV shows that I've gotten really hooked into and, and really liked the plot of, but one of them that I did like was a show called Undercover Boss. I don't know, maybe you've, you've seen that show, but basically the whole plot of the, the series is they will find these big-time CEOs, and they will take them out of their corporate headquarters, out of their nice, plush offices, and they will take them into the field where they work with people on the front lines. And so maybe the CEO begins working as a janitor with the other custodial staff, or maybe um, as a receptionist in the office and dealing with the, the other executives. Um, but they take them, they try to disguise them so that no one else knows. And the, the cool part of the story is there's always something that the CEO learns, not only about themselves, but about what it takes to do their jobs. And they always come out kind of looking at the company and the organization and the way they relate to people in a different way. It's always kind of challenging. But the really cool part of the story for me is the very last of the show because they will host this big employee get-together where they have all the employees out there. And they'll call out the CEO. And you watch the, the employees, these janitors, these people that, that would never, ever get to meet corporate executives, see and realize that they had been working for days right next to one of these corporate executives, the CEO of the company. And, and almost always the CEO will do something really big to bless those people because they learn about them. They, they learn about their family and their hardships and, and how difficult it is and where their life has been. And the story is always really cool. But, but what's so fascinating about it is you have these really high executives becoming like everyone else, kind of surrendering their power their control to go be like everyone else. And maybe one of the most intriguing things about the gospel is that Jesus, the God of the world, and that's what Mark is going to claim, Jesus is the God of the universe, surrenders all of that power to come and live among us. The, the message, um, Eugene Peterson says that in, in John chapter 1, that God... Uh, or Jesus made his dwelling among us. He moved into the neighborhood. God becoming man. And then throughout this series, what we're trying to do is look at these accounts, stories from the life of Jesus told by the writer of the Gospel, Mark, that give testimony to the question, who is Jesus? As we say, we're putting each of these stories kind of on the witness stand and allowing them to give their perspective. And one of the, the really cool things so far in this series that we've seen is these are people who have a lot of fanfare for Jesus up until this point. For, for the most part, they're coming to Jesus to be healed. They're celebrating him. They're so excited to see him. And then the tone kind of changes. You get story after story of miracle, 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 and now the story changes. Because the same people who are confronted with this question, who is Jesus, are going to answer it in a slightly different way. And that's what I love about Mark's gospel, 
is he doesn't just discount the people who don't agree with him. He doesn't discount and say, well, you're not really compelling and helpful to my story and to, my t- to what I'm trying to do. But he gives the skeptical a voice. And he allows that voice to be heard. And so here in chapter 2 of Mark, there are beginning five stories where Jesus is confronting the religious leaders and the systems of their religion, the way they practice religion. And, and he's talking about things like last week we talked about Jesus forgiving sins. There was a system for that. The way you forgive sins is through the sacrificial system and offering sacrifices with the priest. And Jesus kind of just skips over that and forgives sins. And this powerful question, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, well, I can. And also you as my followers, you can. You can forgive people when they sin against you. And then there are four more stories that occur. And he's going to be challenging them based on the company that he keeps and the way they practice the law. Those are the stories where they're trying to trick and confront Jesus, these people called Pharisees, these religious leaders, the ones who know the law and have it all together. The people you were going to look at and say, if there was anyone who had the perfect relationship with God, of course it would be them. And so we're going to ask that question of the Pharisees, who is Jesus? And the reason that question is so important is because it is a question that you must answer as well. You must answer this question simply because of the claim of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Because if he is who he says he is, then that demands an answer. And as we've said through this whole series, you can choose. And in fact, today we're going to see some people who choose to to look at it a different way than, than I do, than Mark does, and hopefully different than you do as well. But they're going to be asked that question. And they're going to say, I don't don't know about this. I'm not so sure Mark's right. I'm not so sure Jesus is telling the truth. And as we've said, this whole series, you have that choice too. You can choose to hear the stories about Jesus and walk away. And say, you know what, I I want nothing to do with this. You, You can hear it and say, I don't believe it's true. But regardless, you must make a decision one way or the other. So in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, 
for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So real quick, what is a tax collector? If you're new to this Jesus story, um, that might be an idea that's completely foreign to you. But a tax collector during this time was typically a Jewish citizen. And when Rome invaded and took power, they found people that they appointed and said, your job is to go collect taxes on behalf of Caesar for Rome. And so you're a Jew living in this country you believe God is the God of the universe, and this new king has showed up on the scene saying, Caesar, I, I am Lord, and you must worship me. And now you have these people who are Jewish people just like you who are coming around saying, yeah, Caesar gets half of what you have. Some historians believe that during the time of Jesus, people were taxed up to 80 or 90% of their income. So you've been fishing and out on the lake all night long. And you come back in and your boat is full of fish. And there's a tax collector saying, Caesar, Caesar gets half. And he would take his tax from you. And he could also tax you on behalf of himself to earn his living. And so this incredible burden that was placed on the people and you look up on, on the hill, and there's a beautiful house the tax collector lives in because he is living off of you. This peasant, this worker, this fisherman, this farmer who's giving everything you have to Rome. And so to say tax collectors were hated and despised by the Jewish people would be an understatement. They wanted nothing to do because they were seen as traitors, people that completely turned their back on God and their own country, their people. And so here you find Jesus eating with these tax collectors and sinners. So, so if you were to imagine, and, and kids, you're going to get this. Do you, you remember the movie Zootopia and Officer Hops, who, who wanted so badly to be a police officer? And when she finally becomes a police officer, what does she become? Kids online or in here you can answer? No, there's no little kids in here who know. What, what does she become, Kaylee? A police officer who's a meter maid. Right? And so she walks around the streets of downtown Zootopia writing tickets for parking meters. And, and her interaction, her, her ideal job was this police officer where she thought she would just be so respected and so loved, and now she's making people miserable day after day. You, you were in your parking spot too long. Here's a ticket. Just passing them out. So, I mean, maybe <laughs> if you want to try to find a, a good parallel, it, it would be this person that is despised for what they do. And these tax collectors, these tax collectors have company with Jesus. They're having dinner, the sinners, the tax collectors. See, here's the problem. From the viewpoint of the Pharisees, 
You cannot claim to be a person of God and associate with those people because those people are the problem. See, it's far easier to dismiss those we label and group together because when we can label them, when we can group them, we can dehumanize them. They lose their name, they lose their face, and we don't actually interact with them. And ultimately, I think what the Pharisees have, what we have, is a pronoun problem. We, we have this pronoun problem because it's more difficult to love those people than it is to love that person. It's far more difficult to love those people that we can generalize, group together, label, than it is that individual. And more importantly, that individual, when you learn that that individual has a name, and that individual has a story, and that individual has a family. And so Jesus says to these Pharisees and these tax collectors, I want you to come meet my friend Levi. I want you to know him. And Jesus says this to them. Why does he eat? This is their question. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the Pharisees say those people are the problem. Jesus says those people are why I came. Those people are the problem. Jesus says, no, that person is my friend Matthew. And you can actually sit down across the table from him and have a conversation and get to know him. And walls are broken down when we do that. When we find out that that person has a name and a face. But let me tell you, those conversations are not easy. They weren't easy in Jesus' day. They aren't easy in our day. But Jesus has this encounter. And he calls a guy named Levi. This tax collector. He says, you come follow me. The next story, going on to verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that... John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not. Jesus answered, how can guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, a new piece will pull away from the old making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. See, continually, Jesus is giving voice to these doubters, these people who are questioning Jesus and what he is doing in the world. And they're confronting, Jesus is confronting their systems. See, we fast. And honestly, if you look back at the law, there's only one day 
in all of the Old Testament that fasting is commanded. It is the day of atonement. That is when fasting is commanded of the people. But it is also something that is supposed to draw you closer to God. By by going without food, you are saying, my sustenance, my bread, my drink is God. He provides for me. And so the religious leaders took it a little further. And they said, well, what we're going to do, since fasting is a good thing, is we're going to make it a rule that we're going to fast on the second and fifth day of the week, every week. And we're going to walk around and people are going to know that we're fasting because it is the second and the fifth day of the week. And they had these rules to help people, that that was their goal, probably more than to help themselves follow God. But their rules became the purpose of their life. They allowed the purpose of the law to become simply being obedient to the law. And so they ask, why aren't you fasting like us? And here's the crazy thing. Something that was meant to draw people to God actually was pushing them away from God. They're they're fasting. How how can fasting be a good thing? Well, fasting became their purpose. Rather than fasting as a means to draw yourself closer to God. And so he says to the people that God is doing this new thing in the world. And now is not time to fast. Now is time to celebrate because the kingdom of God has come near. Now you have a chance to be a part of it. There's going to be a time when you're going to want to fast because God is going to be, Jesus is going to be taken away from you. See, the kingdom has come near. And the question is, can you see it? And so there's the the first, basically, three. The the forgiveness of sins question as he confronts that system. The, um, looking back, what was the other one? Um, who he um, associates with and the tax collectors and the sinner, and then the question about fasting. Now, the next two stories all center around the Sabbath day. And just real quickly, kind of refresh your memory, there are ten commandments, and one of the commandments, the fourth commandment, is about the Sabbath. So here's what it says in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor, and do all your work, but on the seventh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor your foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so here is this Sabbath day, this seventh day in the creation story. As God is creating the world and then resting from the work he's doing. And he makes one of the laws that you, as my people, are going to have a Sabbath day in your life and you're going to rest from your work. And so again, the Pharisees 
hear the law, and they say, well, we need to make some, some rules. We need to draw some lines and boundaries so that people don't get too close because we're going to just define here's what it is to work on the Sabbath. And then let's just step back, and if, if it means you know, to work on the Sabbath is to walk a mile, then let's permit people to walk anywhere they need to go up to half a mile. But if you walk over half a mile, then you're breaking our law. They're little hedges just to make sure you don't get too close to the law. And then they make them as if God had said them. You must obey these laws. And so, one Sabbath, verse 23, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? Let's just stop right there for just a second. There is so much irony in this question that Jesus asks. Have you ever read? He asked this question to a group of people who knew the story of King David and the law and the prophets backwards and forwards knew everything about the law, and in most cases had probably memorized it. And Jesus asked them this question, which is kind of like, you know, the, the knife, the little off comment, the knife in the, the gut. Have you never read? Well, of course we've read. We know it better than you do. And then to make it worse, as they're doubting Jesus is who he says he is, he compares himself to the greatest Israelite king, David. He says, you know David and his mighty men, you know when they were wandering through the fields and they were hungry and they ate the bread that the priest gave them. Have you ever read? And then me and King David. See, for them, for the Pharisees, the purpose of keeping the Sabbath was keeping the Sabbath. God gave you the Sabbath. He says it's one of his Ten Commandments. So what are we going to do? We're going to keep the Sabbath. But again, They've missed the point, and they've missed the big picture. I think Jesus would say the purpose of keeping the Sabbath is not to keep the Sabbath, but rather to keep you. That the Sabbath would keep you healthy and whole. Because you weren't designed to go 100 miles an hour every day, all day, all week. That you need to have a rhythm in your life of work and rest. Of ceasing from working. And Sabbath was all about creation. It was about God creating something new and bringing new life. 
and they made it simply a law that they had to follow. But the purpose of Sabbath was to disengage and recharge so that you could re-engage as my image bearers in this world. That you would step back from the work that you were doing, this divine purpose and divine calling that you have And that you would go back into the world refreshed and renewed to engage this world for Christ. And somewhere along the way, they lose sight of this. So have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is only lawful for the priest to eat. And he also gave it to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Sabbath was a blessing. And the purpose of keeping Sabbath is not to keep Sabbath, but rather to keep you. Then, one more story. Again, revolving around the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. What are the Pharisees doing? They're looking and they're watching. What what is their purpose to be in the synagogue? It should be to see God, to worship him. But where is their focus? Their focus is on someone else. Their focus is on what Jesus is doing or not doing. They missed, somehow, missed the purpose of the reason they are supposed to be there. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, this is his question, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Isn't it funny? Sometimes... The answers that have no words speak the loudest. Because Jesus hears their answer without uttering a word. And so he says he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Why why are they supposed to be there in the synagogue? To see God, to worship him. Why are they there? to cast blame, to accuse someone. 
And we've said there are two spirits in this world. We're going to talk about this a lot more next week. There's two spirits in this world. There is the Holy Spirit, which is a counselor, a comforter, an advocate. And there is a very unholy spirit, the spirit of the Satan, which means the accuser, the adversary. And you have people, listen, listen, you have people with the best intentions in the world, it would seem, whose purpose in that place was to blame and accuse. And what Jesus is frustrated with, what he's angry at, is their stubborn hearts. And it brings a really important question because, listen, I understand all of us have the best intentions in the world. I I am the most pure-hearted person I know, okay? Really, I am. But at times, it is so easy for our hearts to become stubborn. And it's so easy to start focusing on things that don't matter that much. It's so easy to come here with the purpose of worshiping Jesus and find yourself distracted by everyone else and in it miss purpose of being here. The the Sabbath, he asked this powerful question because the the Sabbath was for the purpose of restoration and healing of yourself, right? It was to rest from your work, to bring healing to your life. It is not a day of death, blame, and accusation. And so Jesus asked that question, is it better to save life or to kill it? And their silence is deafening. It speaks far more volume than anything I think they could have said. And Jesus is frustrated with their hearts. Which brings up a really, really important question for us. Here, is it possible? Is it possible to be so fixated on one thing that we miss the main thing? Is it possible to be so fixated on one thing that we miss the main thing? You have these people who we would look at and say, that is the picture of what it looks like to follow God. Now, now understand, understand, okay? You get the privilege of reading this story 2,000 years later where you get to see the insight into their intent and their heart. And you can say, well, I don't consider them the greatest religious people in the world. Because Jesus talks about, you get that privilege. But if you were there, 
putting yourself in first century Jerusalem, Nazareth, Galilee, Judea, in that region, in that area, those are the people you would look at and say, they've got it all together. I wonder, is it possible? Is it possible for us to slide into that same trap? Where we look the part. Because here, here's the deal. I, I mean, for, for me, I've been going to church for my whole life. I was born in a pew, right? And I know how to play the game. I know what you're supposed to do. I know how you're supposed to act. I know how to look the part of a really, really religious person. And my guess is most of you do too. question that I think is so important. Is it possible to be fixated on the one thing that we miss the main thing? Is it possible to be so fixated on looking the part and doing what you're supposed to do that you miss the purpose in doing it? Because, see, here, here's the thing. The law had a purpose. The purpose of the law was to bring people closer to God. But they took that purpose and they reworked it. And they made the purpose of the law obedience to the law. And it makes me stop and ask some, some really important questions, I think, of myself. Is it possible to be obedient and not live in obedience? Is it possible to know about Jesus and not really know Jesus? Is it possible to come gather in Jesus' name and not think once about what Jesus is doing in your life? And I don't, I don't say this as a guilt trip, but I, I wonder if God doesn't just say, oh, I'm frustrated with, with your stubborn hearts. I'm, I'm frustrated with the games. I'm frustrated with people who want to look the part but don't want to represent me in this world because I have called you to be these divine image bearers. And the Pharisees give, I think, just as powerful as of a testimony as all of the others have. And their testimony is simply... This is not how we thought God was going to work in the world. And so, since God is not doing things the way we thought he would, we don't believe that you're from God. We don't believe you're God at work in this world. Because they lost sight of the purpose of the law. Religion, their religion, became a roadblock. Because you would look at their, their life, the fasting, keeping the Sabbath, and you would say those are really 
good things. But those things were not the purpose. Those things were merely a vehicle to bring you into closer relationship with God. I want to ask you this morning. Have you lost sight of the purpose of church? The purpose of of reading and studying and praying and growing. Not, Not that it's just simply a check mark in a box but it is for the purpose of drawing you closer to God so that God will transform your life as his image bearers in this world would Jesus look around at you and say I am angry and deeply distressed at your stubborn heart. Because I'll just be honest, at times, I think you would say that about mine. Where I start to lose my purpose and my focus in doing and doing and doing, because it's possible to do a lot of great things for God and not know God. And what God desires is you. See, all the other religions of the world and and throughout human history have been man searching for God. And what sets Christianity apart from all those other religions is that Christianity is God's search for man. That he leaves his throne to come live among us in pursuit of us. And if we ever lose sight of that, if we ever forget that, then I think that's where our hearts start to grow weary. God loves you. And he is pursuing you. He has since the beginning of time in the garden. He's been searching for you. And he's giving you these ways to connect with him. Not for the purpose of doing them, but for the purpose of a relationship with him. So, Is it possible to be so fixated on the one thing that we miss the main thing? Because the Pharisees' testimony should speak really powerfully to us. Because I think it is a trap that would be so easy for us to fall into at any point. Father, today, Father, I pray that these words challenge us. Father, that they refocus us. We hear the words of the Pharisees, Father, who who are doubting that Jesus is who he claims to be. 
And Father, the biggest reason is because God is not showing up in the way they thought He would. But Father, ultimately, I think because they've lost sight of the main thing. And Father, at the end of the day, what matters more than anything else is our relationship with you. And Father, it's my hope and prayer today as we gather in your name that you gather among us, within us, and that you change us. And Father, that we leave here today different, transformed, renewed, because we have encountered the risen Jesus. So Father, help us today as we follow you, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who with the joy set before him endured the cross. And so, Father, today we worship you, we celebrate you, we thank you. And, Father, most of all, we plead with you. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen.